Help us here to hear your word and to understand the message you have for us. Help us to glorify and honor you and serve you in all that we do here today. And we ask you this for the sake of Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Good morning, beloved. Good to see you all. I can say summers are fun. We should go back to the old building for a couple of summers. Next time somebody's really, really pregnant, we'll just take a trip. Uh, it'd get like 130 degrees in there. And, uh, we've seen a lot of women mistake labor, heat stroke for labor, but uh, thank God for the niceties. I'm going to be in the Gospel of John today. I want to I continue spot teaching, if I can say it that way. And I want to talk specifically about something that I've been discussing for months, and that is what it means to be and live authentically and free. Right, we hear where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. We know that the Scripture talks about that Christ, the Son, has come to set you free. If you are free in the Son, you are free indeed. And there is a wonderful emphasis and a theological purpose behind those teachings and yes, it is inclusive of what is naturally occurring because of what Paul teaches in Romans, because of the context of his audience, in that we are free from sin and death. We are slaves to righteousness. We are free from the law, from its consequences, from its bondage. And what this does for us is it establishes in our minds this presence this mindful reality of being here in this earth, but knowing that we are tethered to something greater than this world. And more than that, there is a love that we have experienced that most people in the world do not know. Most people in the world cannot know. Most people in the world do not understand. Because it is a divine work. It is a spiritual experience. However, there is a, a huge disconnect in our culture that... People have mistaken theological passion and study. And you've heard Pastor Trey and I talk about this over the summer often. They've mistaken that with spiritual maturity. It has its place and it is good for some of us, but it is not recommended nor required of all of us. And so therefore, if it's not required of us, it is not the essence. It is not the grounds. It is not the, 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 the root from which our maturity and our authenticity and our identity comes. What do I mean? In other words, we can know a whole lot of truth about the Bible. We can know a whole lot of spiritual things. We can actually know all the original languages and we can be amazing in our the discussion with these things, but it does not make us a child of God. And I'm here to attest, and I've said this many times over, a child can be born of God, no matter their age, no matter their capabilities, no matter where they are in life or what they've come through or what their parents believe or what they don't believe, no matter where they may be in the context of their spiritual journey. A three-year-old, a two-year-old, a 92-year-old can be born of the Spirit of God to rest in the sufficiency of Jesus Christ and then learn through the teaching of the Scripture exactly what that means. 
But there are some who argue that without certain theological premises, without certain theological things stacked upon each other, that with, if you're missing one of these puzzle pieces, you have not been born of God. There are some people who would say, well, if you haven't confessed the, 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 the awakening to know that something that you may have believed 57 years ago was false, that you don't even remember what you did yesterday, but you knew what you believed 57 years ago in, 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 in children's camp. You know, uh, because you haven't come to conclude that that was wrong, then you haven't been born of God. I'm not kidding. And this is, this is nonsensical. I want to be kind and not dogmatically assertive. But this is nonsensical. Our authentic lives as believers is because of God doing what he promised to do in spite of his people and without his people. He did the work of redemption for us. He's loved us before we were, and we have been saved by the finished work of Christ, who said in his dying breath, it is finished. Faith is a gift of God to rest and to know divinely, not cognitively, not academically, not through good schooling, but through the Spirit Himself. Sometimes that surpasses understanding, sometimes that surpasses everything that the world would say is authentic. If you're authentically a child of God, you authentically have been given a divine faith that sometimes you are unable to truly grasp the depths of. And beloved, I have tried many times to throw it away. Have you? The beauty of that is you can't throw it away. And it hasn't been the study of theology or the study of pretext precepts or the systematic application of the grammar or the syntax that has kept me in the faith that's been the spirit of God that when everything I've ever learned I've thrown off the cliff of despair and when I'm done I'm through there's nothing I'm done with this God stuff and this gospel stuff and this mission stuff and this ministry stuff and I'm done and you walk back out and you fall right into it Yes, pride comes before the fall, you know. It's nothing that can keep us away from the love of God. Nothing. We see that. We see John. Go to John chapter 1. I'm going to be all over the place. I'm going to be in John 2, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 13, all over the place. I'm just going to talk about some things. I want to show, I'll, just give you, I'll give you an outline. I want to show how the miracles of Jesus, the teachings of Jesus, the I am statements of Jesus, and the interactions that Jesus has with two groups of people give us the foundation of our authentic, free lives in him. And if our identity is, 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 is attached, is tethered, if who we really are and our value is tethered to what we've accomplished or what we know, or the job we have, or the children we have, or the marriage we have, or the, or the career we have, or the wealth we have, then we are not authentic. We are playing the game of culture. If our identity is tethered to our successes or failures, or to our grievances, or to our passions, 
then we're not understanding who we really are. I mean, if someone were to ask you in the middle of nowhere, which happens sometimes, hey, who are you? The first thing we do is we tell them our name. We give them the moniker given to us by our families that have some significance to our parents, and sometimes we don't even know why. Some people tell me, they're not like, where did your mom come up with that? Mm. Boggle roulette? Well, there's nine characters spilled on the table. Sounds good. There's your name. A couple of consonants. We don't know, but that's not our identity. That might be the stamp of our identification and culture, but it's not our identity. Well, my father is or my mother is. Yeah, that identifies us in the sense of people knowing who we are and who we're from and where we're from. But who are we? And I think for the Christian, it goes deeper than that. Because for the non-believer and for us, we will always be digging through the layers of this depth. We will always be mining underneath the earth to try to find in our soul exactly who we are. But we must change the question as Christians to whose are we? Not who are we. Our significant identity, our authentic selves are tethered to whose we are. Because our gifts, passions, our avocations, you know what that means? Hobbies, interests, things we do not for a living. Don't define us because they change. And I personally believe that we ought to every day recognize that there is one place of our authentic selves that will never change, and that is in Christ. And that because of that, it will inform everything else. And everything else will change. And the only thing that doesn't change in our life is the commitments we've made and the promises we've made, as long as it is up to us. The Gospel of John. I taught through this quickly. I taught through this entire letter quickly. It was four years, and uh, it was fast. There's a lot of things that I'm like, oh, I get like halfway through two years, I'm going, man, I want to start over. But that's just me. It's not necessary. So this morning, I'm going to just like, I'm just going to explode in this. And this is my jam, y'all. It's going to be, it's going to be fun for me. This is like my summer vacation. Just going through John. <laughs> Is, is just great for me. But let's, let's look at the miracles of Jesus. In the Gospel of John, where it starts here, let's, let's hear the first few verses. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was, and, and the word was with God, and the Word was God. He, the person, the Word, who was God, was in the beginning with God. And all things, all things were made through Him, and without Him, was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men, of humanity. doesn't mean male. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. We'll stop there. Because if not, I'll end up in verse 18, and then an hour will be gone. John develops this writing... In his late days, near his death, 
He was imprisoned as a, not like what we know, in exile on Patmos. And he had the freedom to write. He wrote his letters. He wrote his gospel. He received his revelation. That's what apocalypse means, revelation, revealed things. It doesn't mean chaos and end times. It means revealed things. And he wrote seven miracles. Did Jesus do more miracles than seven? Yes. He wrote about seven teachings. Did Jesus teach more than seven things? Yes. He wrote about seven I am statements. Did Jesus say more than seven I Yeah, absolutely. Matter of fact, in this gospel record, it says if the pages of the teachings of Jesus were penned, the world could not contain them. Now that's a tall order. Because Jesus' teaching is not over. It's continuing. It's not new revelation. It's not expansion of new things. It's just continuation of teaching. And as we teach Christ, his teaching is still. The world could not hold. And we're not even thinking about that rightly when we think it's, well, that's a lot of books. It's about the depths of God revealing himself to his people through Jesus Christ, his son. So let's think about these things. The seven miracles, I'll give them to you. The turning the water into wine, the healing of the official son, the paralytic at Bethesda, feeding the 5,000, walking on water, healing the blind man from birth in John 9, and raising Lazarus from the dead. Now, he raised himself. But let's look... Specifically those things. The first one, turning the water into wine. Okay, it's not written there so we can have the freedom to drink. We do. It's okay. But it's also a personal conviction. Nothing that prohibits the use of alcohol in the Bible. The Bible prohibits any use of anything, cheeseburgers or apple pie, that, that leads to debauchery. <laughs> for our good, not because God is this maniacal killjoy. No fun for you. It's only kale. I mean, you know, could you get to heaven and the, the marriage supper of the lambs, kale and cucumber water? Excuse me. <laughs> Protest. Can I talk to the manager? Turn the water into wine. At the wedding of Cana, Jesus turns the water into wine. The ceremonial water that is used for cleansing, the thing that signifies my righteousness. As a, as a Hebrew person ready to worship. And Jesus goes and takes that water, which had deep spiritual significance, and he turns it into the greatest alcoholic beverage that these people have ever tasted long after they had already had the trash wine that had run out. And it proves that Jesus is the better bridegroom. It proves that Jesus is the one who... To whom marriage points. It shows who he is. And it establishes the reality that he did not even take credit for this. He gave credit to the bridegroom who screwed up royally. Who did not plan well. How are you going to plan for a future when you can't even plan for a dinner? Well, it was seven days. Could you imagine having a seven day lunch? With an open bar? I mean, come on. 
How do you manage that? You pour it all in there. But Christ gave credit to the groom. It's like Christ's righteousness is credited to us. And the pictures go on and on and on. The healing of the royal official's son. This Capernaum, where Jesus did most of his ministry in Capernaum. He comes to Jesus and he says, Hey, teacher, my son is dying. Remember this? If you just come with me, if you just show up, you just go and heal him. And Jesus says to him, what? He's healed. He's healed. I mean, Jesus proves who he is right here. He he shows that he's he's not some man that has to walk around like a doctor. He's not some magic guy. He's not some healer that has to go lay hands on someone. He's the creator of all things. He created the the official. He created his son. He created the sickness inside of him. He's the God of all things, the God of microbes, the God of biology, the God of psychology. He's the God of life. In him was life. And the life that was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not, better yet, cannot overcome it. Death is not the enemy. Death is not the end. Death is nothing for the believer. And Jesus, I mean, this man's identity became, oh, my son is sick. My son is dying. That became who he was. That was his authentic self. And Jesus says, I speak against that. You don't understand. I have healed your son. And what did the man do? He just went home. What would we do? Nah, Jesus, sort of like Mary, I mean, uh, Martha did, Mary and Martha, because they were so grieved. Martha's like, if you had just come. Jesus says, and we'll get to this today, I am the resurrection, and I am the life. This healing of the paralytic in John 5, at the pool of Bethesda. Jesus heals this man. This man has been paralyzed his whole life, 38 years. You know the story, and you see the, you see the marginal notes in a, lot of the, in a lot of the text throughout antiquity. See the marginal notes because it was a myth. It was something that people believed. The reason so many invalids laid at that pool is because they believed that when the water stirred, you know, with a bird turd, oh, there's a ripple in the water. It's an angel touching down. And if we, the first one in the water is healed, it was their mythology. This man had been laying there every day. Somehow, either his family or some person, whatever, just took him. I'm sick of this guy. I'm just going to take him down here. I'm going to let him sit by this pool. He thinks he's going to be healed. And so Jesus asked him this absurd question. Why are you here? This wasn't beach resort. This was people wanting to be healed. And there were hundreds of people. Hundreds of people. And Jesus walks up to him and says, hey, do you want to be healed? Duh, I'm here, right? It's not that Jesus needed to know. We needed it written down. We needed to understand what was taking place here. We needed to see. Jesus is revealing himself. This man's identity was he was a cripple. He was an invalid. He was unable to walk. He was unable to move. He was unable to take care of himself. He was unable to dress himself. That's who he was. That was his authentic self. Because of whose he was, something changed. Now, the miracle would have gone something like this had the world written it. 
Jesus would have helped him into the water and he would have been healed and everybody would have been excited because Jesus would have been a hero to help this man get into the water so that this would be true for him. Yay, Jesus, you're such a wonderful guy. You helped the old lady across the street. You helped the invalid into the pool. But no, Jesus doesn't do any of that. Jesus looks at him and he commands him with all authority. You've been laying here all your whole life to get into the water. He says, nobody helps me get into the water. I command you to stand up and pick up that mat you've been wallowing on and laying on your entire life and get out of here. And the dude stood up, picked up his mat, and got out of there. That's what he did. Oh, his identity changed. He goes to the chief priests and the Pharisees. He says, ta-da, ra-cha-cha-cha, ta-cha-cha. But he forgot to leave his mat. He forgot to leave his beach towel. And he had it with him, and it was against the law to do laundry on the Sabbath. It was against the law to fold your underpants on the Sabbath. It was against the law to take a trip on the Sabbath. It was against the law to do anything that didn't look like sitting and doing nothing on the Sabbath unless you found a way around it, like tying strings or other unique creative ways of getting around it. And here's this guy whose identity is the 38-year-old man who's never walked, and he goes, hey, look at me! And under his arm is his beach towel, and the only thing that these religious zealots can do is go, who told you to pick up your towel? In their eyes, this man's authentic identity was the man who picks up towel on Sabbath. And the guy goes, I don't know, but he told me to get up and I got up. I had no choice. I just did it. I don't know what happened. I didn't argue with him. I didn't try to wiggle my legs. To see, I just stood up. I've never stood up in my entire life. And I just stood up and I walked around. And you're going to sit here and you're going to fuss about a towel? Whose are you? This man belonged to Christ. It doesn't matter what people say you are. It doesn't matter what people say you believe or don't believe. It doesn't matter all the things in this world that everybody else has prescribed for you. The feeding of the 5,000. What shall we do? Jesus looks out on these people and he has compassion. This is John chapter 6. And John 6 is rich and thick. There's a lot there. Feeding the 5,000. And Jesus looks and he has compassion on them. Why does he have compassion? Because that's what Jesus, that's who he is. And he goes, man, they're hungry. They need some food. They've been following us around for days and they're here for this festival. And goodness, look at the bondage. You see, look at the bondage. Look at the shackles look at the ropes look at these people who are walking away from their homes for days on end to travel over here to so they can fulfill this religious requirement that's supposed to point to me and here i am and they're following me around and they're starving to death i'm going to show them how i feed y'all got some food and in an attempt to be sort of like a smart like in my opinion hey we got a little boy sack lunch here you go what you gonna do with this here it is. That's fine. That's plenty. I got it. Now get ready because we got a lot of serving to do. Could you imagine? Five 
thousand people eating. And when it was done, they took up 12 baskets of leftovers. And then the very next day, all the people are standing on the beach waiting for Jesus, and he vanishes, right? And a storm comes and blows some boats around, and the disciples get into the boats to go to Capernaum because Jesus is gone. Can't find him. All these people say, hey, the disciples are leaving. Let's follow them. And they get across the way, and what happens? The disciples are halfway through. They're halfway through. They don't know where Jesus is. They don't know how to get to him. And a storm comes up, and some things happen, and all sorts of stuff. And, hmm, they look out there, and there's this guy standing in the middle of the sea. Two and a half, three miles out, in the middle of nowhere, in the middle of the water, here's Jesus standing out there, and he steps into the boat, and the boat teleports to dry land, and there they are. And then some hours later, all the rest of these knuckleheads get to where they're going, and they're looking after Jesus, says, Jesus, where did you go? We was looking for you. And he turns to them and he says these words, and hear these words. He says, you seek after me only because you want your stomachs full. Don't labor for the bread that perishes, but labor for the bread that endures to eternal life. I am, see there's one, that bread. I mean, how many of the disciples told the story? Man, we was in the ocean and, I mean, there were fishermen. They had hundreds of stories about storms and surviving things. I find it extremely odd and a little macabre that in a comedic interest, I have a lot of terrifying events in my life that I've made funny when I tell the story. I don't think it's because I grew up in a household law enforcement. <laughs> and sometimes I guess you just have to make things funny because they're not. Imagine the stories. The identity, oh yeah, you're a fisherman. Tell me about a time you almost died. Oh man, it was horrible. You should see. And Bartholomew was juggling fire. And the boat caught fire. I mean, can you see it? And we almost burned to death. Ain't that something? No, it's not something. But their identity was changed. Their authentic selves were not we almost perished in a, in a storm. We didn't know where this man was. The God of the cosmos took our boat to shore. The God of the cosmos calmed the storm. The God of the cosmos took it all. But he didn't take them out of it. They still had to go through the storm. They still had to experience the storm. Beloved, who's with us? That's five, by the way. Healing of the man born blind. And the disciples don't like this one. Right? They see him there. He's been there a lot. Blind. They didn't have disability coverage back in that day. This man has to panhandle and ask for mercy so he can eat. And a lot of times it's compassion that people help others like that, but you can only do so much out of compassion. But most of the time I believe it's tolerance. Oh, this is so exhausting. Give the man something to eat so he won't ask me again today. You know, that kind of thing. And so that was the temperament of the day, and these people came... And passed him all the time. And the disciples were with Jesus. And they saw this man. And he goes. The disciples ask. Who sinned in this man's life? What wicked 
sin caused this man to be born blind? Was it his sin? <laughs> now get the implications of that silly question. Was it his sin or was it his parents? You know, that sinful zygote of, I mean, he, he calls his mom some acid reflux. He kicked her a little bit too many times in the kidneys. That full bladder made her scream. Jesus is like, yeah, little sinner, I'm going to make you blind. I mean, you see how absurd that question is? But that is the, that's the point. Beloved, nothing's changed. That's the sentiment of the sovereign grace community that we are a part of. That's the sentiment of the evangelical church that... We've lived it as a part. That's the sentiment of Protestantism. That's the sentiment of American Christian culture, by and large. Oh, the reason you're suffering, the reason you're doing this, the reason you're going through that, and we find our identity in our suffering. Instead of knowing what Jesus says, he said, that man was born blind? So that I could be glorified in it. What's that mean? Explaining glory. Look at glory in a simple way. The glory of God is seeing God for who he really is in full. It's like when you're born, there's your glory. You're naked and you're unashamed. And you see, everybody sees you. And they see you as you are. No pretense, no character flaws, no acting, no building, no masks. God's glory is to see him as he is. And the Bible says, we have seen him. Verse 14 of chapter 1 of John. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. We have seen him for who he is. We've seen God in all his fullness. That which Moses could not even look at. The fullness of all that he is as the only son from the Father, Father, full of grace and truth. For from his fullness, from his glory, from all that he is, from everything that he's exposed himself to be, we have received Grace upon grace. And this man had never seen anything in John 9, has he? And he'd only heard everything that was that everybody said about him, despised. He heard what these men said. And he sat there in his blindness and he thought to himself, what did I do wrong? What did my mom and dad do? And Jesus heals him of his blindness and says, tell no one. And the man does exactly the opposite. And he tells everyone. And he goes into the temple, the very, the very refuge of his people, the place where God meets man in the mercy seat of the Holy of Holies and the people who orchestrate and who govern and who oversee the intimacy of God and his people as arbiters of truth, as compassion and as proclaimers of the good report of restoration and reconciliation and here's this man who has been reconciled in his physical body and he says this man 
told me to do and I did and I can see. And they think he's a liar. So they call his parents. He's been faking for 38 years, hasn't he? He's just a shark. He's on the side of the road with his cardboard sign getting in his Lambo at the end of the day. I know. I see it. Aha, I gotcha. No, don't gotcha. His parents said he's old enough to speak for himself. We're not getting in the middle of this. <laughs> Who is this man? His entire identity changed. He's no longer the blind guy begging for food, he's the liar. He's the outcast. They threw him out of the temple. That means they banned him from Jewish life. He could buy or sell or trade or worship. But he belonged to Christ. In John 11, we have this wonderful story of this man whom Jesus loved. I want to I really emphasize this. John 11, now there was a man, Lazarus, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. And it was Mary who anointed the Lord with oil and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters, Mary and Martha, sent to Jesus, saying, Lord, he, will, he whom you love is ill. But when, but when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha. Listen to this instruction. Loved Martha and loved Mary and loved Lazarus. It's already been said, but it's reminding. The gospel writer here, the evangelist John, is reminding us he loved them. And the very next word should be in your Bible, so. Why? Because Jesus' love for these three people informed his decision about what's about to be said. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. <laughs> if it says, but, it doesn't make sense, right? It's okay. It's a little tiny thing. Even with but you still see the context. The context actually proves it. But the word so is so much more powerful. It's actually so much more authentic because it's so much more written in the context of the, of the manuscripts. But people were like, if Jesus loved it, he surely had a reason that he didn't go. I can't be the reason that he didn't go. The Bible actually teaches us the reason that he didn't go. Why? Because Lazarus had to die. Lazarus and Martha and Mary, their whole identity was who they were, where they were from, their wealth. They're very wealthy. I mean, imagine an, a year's salary being poured out on somebody else's head and feet into the floor. People always like, Judas is so greedy. No, he's pragmatic also. Hey, don't pour the diamonds in the toilet. I mean, so... He stayed two days longer in the place where he was. And then after two days, he said to the disciples, okay, let's go to Judea. 
There's a lot there. And he goes and he says plainly to the disciples, Lazarus is dead, okay? And for your sake, I'm glad that I was not there. See, I go ahead and reinforce what I've just said, right? I'm glad that I was not there for your sake, but let's go to him. So Thomas, because they had a little argument there with Jesus in John 11 that, oh, no, 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 we can't go back to, go back to Judea. They're after you, man. They're trying to get, they've got posses after you. They've got detectives after you. They've got bounty hunters after you. They're going to get you, Jesus. And so when Jesus says, listen, we're going, this is what it's about. This is the point. Thomas goes, fine, then let's just all go die together. Mr. Pessimist. Mr. Realist, honestly. Peter's like, let's kill them all, you know, two swords. That's all they had. Two swords and 12 men. We can take on the entire Sanhedrin's army, all the temple priests and the guards and Caesar's guards and the sticks and stones and all the people with rocks. You know, Stephen will prove that you can't beat the masses. So Thomas is a realist. He's like, okay, I got this. This is it, y'all. These four years, <laughs> it's been real. See you in heaven. I'm out. Let's go die, Jesus. The irony. So Jesus goes and he tells the story and he says, Here, Lazarus, come out. Four days dead. Bunch of people there, paid mourners. When they found out Jesus was in town, all the Pharisees show up, the priests, the lawyers, the debaters, the rock bearers, they're all there, they're waiting. Well, what are they going to do? Come out! And Lazarus comes out bound. Oh, and if I could find a way to make this work, I'd love to tattoo this idea on my body. And that is, unbind him and let him go. The man came out. His hands and feet were bound, verse 44. His face wrapped with the burial cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. And a majority of the people that saw that knew. Just all of a sudden, they had no theological reference. They had no learning. They had no systematized theology. They had no you know, preaching in their face. They had nothing but to behold the glory of God the Son as this dead man came out unscathed by decay. And Jesus said, let him go. He's free. Hmm. This used to choke me down. And now it riles me up. And then Caiaphas and the rest of those highly religious, extremely important people with all the right answers said, as they met, we got to kill Jesus and the man he brought back from the dead. It shows you how ridiculous they are. If this man can bring him back, what will killing him do? But it was the will of the Lord to crush him. Jesus taught those seven miracles. 
Show us our identity. Show us the power of Christ. And the teachings, and I don't have time to go through all of them in depth, but listen to these teachings. These teachings that we see, Nicodemus, John 3, we're in it a lot. I mean, Trey and I refer to either Romans 3 or John 3 or somewhere in between about every other week. And Jesus talks about being born again. I am born of my mother. I am son of my parents. Yada, yada, yada. That's who I am. But, you know, pastor, philosopher, professor, whatever you want to call it, all these different things that we do and we accomplish. Yes, they're important. These, some of these things are important. My role as a husband, as a father, as a pastor, important to me. But they're not necessarily who I am. Who I am informs these roles. So you see how if we get it mixed up, we, we do it wrong? And if we're listening to the people walking by in our blindness and pretending we're not blind or wishing that something was different rather than embracing and embodying that which we are for the sake of God's glory, we're not understanding. And Jesus tells Nicodemus this reality in a bold way when Nicodemus, the smartest man alive at the time theologically, Jesus gives him the moniker, the teacher of all Israel. Are you not the teacher of all Israel, yet you do not understand these things? When he's telling Jesus that which points to Jesus, <laughs> I love it when experts are talking and Typically men are like, well, yeah, but <laughs> let me stop you right there. I got to, you know, they, they always have a thought. And they're interrupting the expert. And that's sort of what Nicodemus was doing, you know. Just because it's the nature of humanity, right? Well, I've studied now, and I'm older than you, Jesus. Are you? <laughs> and Jesus says, you must be born again. You must be born of the Spirit. And it blew his mind. Why? Because there's no philosophy, there's no psychology, there's no theology, there's no sociology, there's nothing. There's not even any math. And I looked at Trey just to make sure. <laughs> there's not even any math that can talk to that. You've got to be born by the Spirit. Huh? I've got to be your identity is not found in your birth. It's understood in your rebirth. Hmm. Same thing with the woman of the well. The second intercourse with of seven in the Gospel of John. Jesus, and that's what's different than Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Jesus is dealing with the Pharisees and the Sadducees and all this public speaking and stuff. And John gives us seven intimate conversations. The first one being with Nicodemus. The second one being with the woman at the well of Sychar, John 4, which is my evangelistic stick. It's where I go when I'm sharing the gospel with most people. Jesus speaks to the Samaritan woman at a well about the concept of living water. The sustenance of life. And Jesus knows who she is. He knows her. He created her. He knew her before she was. And 
She didn't know who she was. And her identity had been intermingled with all of her mistakes and with her desperation of feeling loved and attached. And she become so dependent upon affection that she was an outcast from her religious society. She was an outcast as an outcast from the Jewish society. So much so that she walked way out of town to an old well that Jacob had given the people that nobody even used anymore because she was embarrassed. She didn't want people to see her. She was tired of feeling, just like the blind man, hearing. She knew in the deep parts of her soul that there were people who looked at her and saw her through eyes of disdain and contempt. And she was tolerated. There's nothing worse in life than to be tolerated. It is not love. And people tolerated her. And Jesus loved her. And Jesus broke the rules. And Jesus broke the law. And Jesus violated his own people's traditions that would have kept him as an authorized, uh, valid uh, teacher. He became unqualified in the eyes of the religious elites when he spoke to a woman like this and offered her a drink from his own cup. <laughs> he knew her. And he pokes the bear inside of her because she tries to debate, to find an identity. She is religious. She is okay. She does have a foundation. She is grounded. It's okay. She's trying to posture herself in this. And that's not the point. That's not who she is. She doesn't have to. You don't have to be that. He says something to her that strikes a nerve. I know that you have no husband. You've had five and the man you're with is not. And that brought shame on her and her conscience. But it wasn't Jesus' intention, see. But that's what happens in the religious world. That's what happens when our identity is tied to what other people think we should be. And then she begins to tell all sorts of things. And in the end, she sits and she looks and she says to this man, then I don't know what I'm going to do. I don't know how to fix this. I don't know how to find out who I really am or how I'm going to escape this identity that I have. But I know this. And she resolves. She says, I know this, that when Christ comes, he'll teach me. <laughs> Isn't that great? And he says, woman, the one to whom you speak, I am. And she leaves everything and she does exactly what she was scared to do. She runs into Capernaum. I mean, she runs into Sychar and exposes herself. She reveals her glory. Hey, everybody, look at me. Whereas an hour before, she was hiding from everybody for years. I met a man who's told me everything that I've ever done. He's told me who I really am. He might be the Christ. Come see. And this is the day after Jesus is thrown out of the temple for cleansing the temple, by the way. He talked about the bread of life. But Jesus talks about being the good shepherd. 
Jesus talks about being the way and the truth and the life. He talks about being the vine and the branches. He promises in John 16 the Holy Spirit, the paraclete, the one who comes alongside as a helper. Where are we in all of this? We're the thirsty. We're the oppressed. We're the tolerated. We're the blind. We're the intelligent. We're the theologian. We're the wandering sheep. We're trying to figure out on our own. We're the ones who are alone. We are the ones not knowing where we are going. Christ is the way. Christ is the good shepherd who takes us to green pastures. Christ is the living water. He is the bread of life. Christ is the one who sends the Holy Spirit. Christ is the birther of new things. That's whose we are. That's whose we are. I am the bread of life, John 6. When we're hungry and we're looking, not just in the physical sense, but in the emotional sense, in the mental sense, in the spiritual sense, we always have a way of finding out how we can fill ourselves. But Christ says he is the bread of life. And if we don't find that as the core of our identity and our hunger, then everything that we ingest is going to come and to stand wanting. It will not measure when we are blind and unable to see and we don't know where we're going and we're looking for that beacon, if we don't understand that our identity is in what Jesus says, I am the light of the world, then we will look at other sources of direction. We will find other ways. But if we know whose we really are and that Christ is our light, when we see other things, we will filter them through that. Not through culture, not through evangelicalism, not through the church, but through Christ. And together, if we are unified in this cause and unified in this understanding and unified in our authenticity, we will walk. We will not quit. We find no way out, but Jesus says he's the door. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way. I am the true vine. I have this little metaphor that I've created in a poem some months ago about being in the soil. And it's interesting as I unpack that every single day, as I think about it just a little bit more. And if I'm not careful, I can put myself at the center of that. And I can be the nourishment, and I can be the light, and I can be the water, and I can be everything to produce the crop that's coming out and then what happens is in an attempt to find myself I will see myself as everything I've accomplished and I will miss the point of who I really am but if Christ has planted me isn't that the imagery that says unless a seed dies it cannot live unless something is planted in the ground so I am in the dirt we are in the dirt and Christ is growing us and with that growth comes weeds and harvest. We talked about that some last week. And these I am statements, along with everything else that's taught in this gospel, they present a distinct metaphor revealing different facets of Jesus' true identity, of his true purpose, highlighting his role as Christ, 
as king, as lord, as priest, as provider, as the source of life, who connects his people in their humanity with God the Father who is righteous. Jesus talks to a lot of people. I don't have time to go through all of it, but he talks to Peter, Thomas, Mary, Magdalene. He talks to Pilate. He says a lot of profound things. He talks to Mary and Martha and Lazarus, the man born blind, the adulterous woman, John 8, Samaritan woman that we just talked about in John 4, Nicodemus in John 3. The first person he talks to in John's gospel is Nathaniel. And he tells Nathaniel, go to to John chapter 1, starting in verse 47. It's a long chapter. Verse 43. Next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee, and he found Philip, and he said to Philip, follow me. He commands him, follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Then Philip found Nathaniel. And Philip said to Nathaniel, we found him of whom Moses in the law and the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael said to him, can anything good come from Nazareth? You see the sentiment, right? Nothing's changed. And these are religious zealots, kind people. Nathanael's not listed as some mean dork or bully. He's just... He's a product of his culture. And in that sentiment, he is fulfilling the expectation of his religious center. That's not about today. Just hold that for future. And Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him. Anyway, he says, what good can come out of Nazareth? And Philip said, why don't you come and look? I'll show you what good comes out of Nazareth. Come see. Okay. So Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said, Uh, I love this. Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit, no guile. You're the authentic thing, buddy. I know you, and your reputation and your identity and your authenticity shines before you. You know nothing good comes from Nazareth. That's That's a really profound and Nathaniel, in his humility, goes, Oh, so you've heard of me. Now, see, hey, man, this guy knows who I am. Yeah, nice to make you acquainted, sir. Isn't that how we are? <laughs> Jesus, Jesus talks to him. How do you know me? How do you know who I am? How do you know that about me? Jesus answers him, Before Philip called you, When you were under that fig tree, I saw you. Now see, today we call the police. Yeah, before you got here about an hour ago when you were sitting on your porch, I saw you. What? Have you tapped into my security system? Have you done something with my phone? What are you doing? No, Jesus saw Nathaniel. Nobody knew where Nathaniel was before Philip got there. Except God. And there's more than that than just saying, 
Because Jesus just said who he was. Jesus just identified Nathaniel deeply in the soul and the essence of his being. Not his name and his father's name and the town he was from or the tree he was sitting under. He saw him. How do you know this about me? Because I see you. That's intimacy. And when we see each other that way, that's intimacy. And some relationships are to be more intimate. But it's about being seen. It's about being known. It's about being heard. This is the authentic identity we have in Christ. He sees us. The call of Christ, the shepherding of Christ, the life of Christ, the light of Christ, the bread of Christ, the water of Christ is not this arbitrary blanket of possibilities. It's a very myopic, intrinsic, intimate, small, narrow, focused, powerful affection that Christ gives to us. And Nathaniel calls him teacher. Rabbi, what does he say? You are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Because see, in him was no deceit. Nathaniel would have no idea who his true identity was in that statement for about four years. But Jesus also talked to the religious leaders. He talked to them in John chapter 5. You notice when Philip went and found him, he says, the one of whom Moses speaks. But the religious leaders in John 5 was looking for the one to whom Moses spoke. For whom, about whom Moses spoke. And they were like, we are Moses' people. We are Abraham's people. And Jesus says, if you were God's children, you would know me. You would see me. But you haven't been born again, see, so you can't see me. You would know me because Moses wrote of me. Jesus wrote a talk to Pilate. He says, you know who you're talking to? I'll hold your life, man. Pilate says, I'll hold your life in my hands. You better watch what you say. And Jesus says, the only reason I'm standing here now is because the Father has put me here. And if you take my life, it's because I've given it to lay it down. And what I lay it down, I'm going to bring it back again. Now see, my personality would have killed him on the spot. Oh, really? I mean, you know. Pilate's like, i got to wash my hands, whatever the people want. What do you want? This murderer, this rebellious person who was trying to damage y'all's relationship with Rome to the point where we were going to kill all of you? We want this guy released. And we want this man dead. The substitution of Christ. This is freedom, beloved. Jesus is freedom. He teaches it. He embraces it. An authentic life is a free life. The miracles of Jesus display the power of liberation, of freedom. 
from not just the physical, but more importantly, the spiritual bondage. The old to new. The healing. The blind to sight. The, from death to life. The I am statements of Jesus illustrate the same thing. These things that give us life, that give us direction, that give us hope, that give us sustenance, that keep us going. Jesus Christ is the one who liberates from darkness and blindness and ignorance. As the door, he ensures freedom for his people. And as the good shepherd, he secures them from harm. Jesus' interactions with people and the religious leaders, it's all about setting people free. Be born again. Be born again. Stop the self-judgment. Samaritan woman, I am your freedom. Be free of guilt and shame. Be free of self-judgment. It's not about law. It's about authenticity. It's about grace. It's about God doing this work. The miracles validate his authentic self. The I am statements validate Christ's authentic identity. And everything that he says and teaches shows us whose we are. So, beloved, who are you? Every day is a journey into that discovery. Stop settling and start living. And let's walk together in that journey. Let's pray. It is great, Father, to just be reminded of all these things. And you know me. You know me. And there's so much that I, I just love to just dance around up here and, and enjoy the gospel. The gospel letter of John. For through the pages of that in my childhood, you brought me to know you. To understand whose I am. And through those pages, you've called me to share it with others. So Lord, help me to live authentically. Help me to teach others to do the same. And to understand that if we are not free, we are not truly living and while we know that we will not escape the bondages of this world and the sickness and the turmoil and the frustration and the emotional things we not escape it completely father even though in the midst of these things lord we are still free we are still free we are still free to live freely so lord we need each other to to grow to mature, to, to, to expand our understanding of these things that we, might, that we might celebrate. And we might celebrate together the freedom we have in Christ. So Lord, give us a gentle spirit because of your mercy and love and grace toward us in Christ. Give us a gentle spirit to each other. Help us to actively pursue intimacy. 
Not in the way the world has taught us or the church has taught us or the culture has taught us or history, but in the way the gospel reveals to us newly every single day. Lord, that is my prayer for us. Please, if it be your will, to give us that now. Starting now. And as we take the table to be reminded of the body and the blood of Christ, we thank you and we worship you and we love you because you have first loved us. In Christ, we pray these things. Amen. Come take the table.